I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to a special edition of Catalyst for Change, the race for Boston. Over the next few weeks, we will introduce you to each of the mayoral candidates and their vision for Boston. 2021 is an important year for Bostonians. We will recover from COVID-19 and we will elect a new mayor. This is an historic election. For the first time in history, Boston will have a mayor who is a person of color with six candidates and an open seat following Mayor Walsh's departure to Washington, DC. There's a lot to cover. And we'll be diving in over the next six weeks with each of the candidates about everything from education to economic development, to racial justice, to their favorite coffee shops and restaurants in our beloved city. We have a significant slate of candidates. Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu is one of those candidates and was the first to declare her intentions to run. Councilor Wu has served on the council since being elected in 2013. Prior to serving as an at-large city councilor, Michelle Wu worked at City Hall for Mayor Tom Menino and his chief of staff, Mitch Weiss, and on Senator Elizabeth Warren's 2012 Senate campaign. She graduated from Harvard Law School and currently lives in Roslindale with her husband and two children. Good morning, Michelle Wu. Good morning. It's great to see you. Thank you. It's great to see you too. Very excited to have you here. You are leading off this series of podcasts that we're going to do with all of the mayoral candidates. And we're so excited to talk to you this morning. Um, You are originally from Illinois and your parents immigrated to this country from Taiwan. Could you talk a little bit about your experience as a child growing up, what life was like, and how did you end up here in Boston? (laughs) Yeah, it's been an unexpected journey for sure. Um, I'm the oldest kid in my family and my parents had come to the U.S. about a year before I was born. So they still didn't speak English. We grew up in very modest circumstances. And throughout my childhood, it was an experience of knowing from a very young age what it meant to help the grownups in my life navigate the barriers. Yeah. As the translator and interpreter in our family the sort of cultural interpreter in a lot of ways as well. And we moved around a lot too. Every time my dad got a higher paying job, he would, we'd move the whole family to that next smallest house in the best school district they could afford. And so my experience was often understanding the wide gaps too in economic situations between me, you know, the kid with holes in my shoes and classmates in my classrooms with incredible uh, resources, but I got to be in those beautiful schools with science labs and arts programming and AP classes. And so it was a lot of feeling of being able to navigate and float between multiple situations and barriers. I still would have had no exposure whatsoever to politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, My parents were very much against any involvement because I didn't realize until later, they themselves were also children of immigrants. And both sets of my grandparents had fled mainland China in the midst of civil war, leaving family behind, losing family members to famine and all of the situations that happened in war. And so politics was dangerous. Politics was corrupt. Politics was, you're not, you're not even supposed to talk about it. But when my mom and dad separated and my mom was becoming a single mom, she began to struggle with very serious mental health issues. I had to drop everything and step in, raise my sisters who were 10 and 16 when my mom was first diagnosed with late onset schizophrenia and become caregiver to my mom. So found our way over and moved my whole family. I'd come out for college. And after that happened, moved everyone over here. And Boston has truly given us everything that I cherish in my life. My mom lives with me today in a two family home, get to send my two kids downstairs to have breakfast with grandma. 
my sisters have gone to great schools in Boston and are working and uh, amazing young women. And I have gotten to represent this incredible community. How, how old were you when, when this happened, when you made the move and brought your family to Boston? You were at Harvard. Yeah. So my mom's first symptoms started when at the very end of my time in school, my, my graduation from Harvard was really the last big public event that she came to. And even then I was just filled with dread because there was such stigma. I hadn't told my friends what was happening at home, the paranoia, the delusions, and you could see little signs of it. And I kept worrying that, you know, and meeting my friends, parents, or in interactions, I tried to just kind of keep things under wraps um, even then, uh, but it got to a breaking point a couple months after graduation when, you know, my mom is just, she's the toughest person I know, incredibly strong, has gone through so much and her immigration story. And she always told us growing up, you know, if you see, uh oh, I hear someone banging at the well, door. We know you have kids. <laughs> <laughs> my mom always told us growing up, if you see someone in trouble, you do not walk away, get in there, figure out what you can do, help. And so when she started hearing cries for help, even though everyone around her told her they're not real, no one else can hear them, um, she was going to get in there. And that meant sometimes she would run out in the middle of the night to knock on the neighbor's door and make sure everything was okay at 3 a.m. And the police would be called and this and that. And so it became um, quite intense for my sisters at home. I was yeah, 22 when I um, began to step into that role. So also very intense for you as a 22-year-old heading out into the world to manage all of the logistics of that and, and really becoming a primary caregiver to your two sisters. And so they came here to Boston. Did you immediately enroll them in Boston public schools? So um, my middle sister was in college at the time and ended up transferring to Suffolk and having a great experience there. My, the baby of our family um, ended up at the Elliott School in the North End while we were living in the South End. Yep. And after middle school, went to Boston Latin. And so I was her legal guardian through the middle school and high school experience. And now I'm starting over with elementary school with my two boys. Yeah, it's such, it's such an interesting ride. That must give you an insider's perspective on Boston Public Schools, as well as your perspective as city councilor and a mother. What do you think about what's happening with education in the city and where would you like to see it go? I mean, I know from my own experiences growing up how transformational public education could be and should be for everyone, right? The opportunity for me to experience what I have in my life from where my, my parents started because they were working so hard, because they fought to make sure that I could access great schools has opened up doors that I never, my parents never, none of us dreamed would ever be possible. And to see in a city like Boston, that there are resources all around, there are incredible opportunities, jobs that are the envy of other cities, institutions, major industries, just so much here. And I've, I know every bit of that from my role in the city council, um, but to see such barriers for our own kids to access this, the incredible colleges around us are not connected to the daily dreams of, of many of our kids because they don't feel that this is the Boston that belongs to them. Mm. And so Boston public schools is really, should be the foundation of everything related to the future of our city, our workforce, our talent, our leadership, our families, and the stability and opportunity they have. So you know, we've seen a whole lot of incredibly 
talented, generous, smart people working on issues in Boston Public Schools for a long time, so much energy, so much resources. And yet when we go about it, testing out something here, piloting something here, nibbling around the edges, the most we've gotten is incremental change in most areas. And mm. so for me, it is about recognizing that we need a transformational approach. And I put forward a, a very comprehensive 50 page education plan that centers on the idea of what happens in the classroom is intimately connected to what our families are experiencing at home and in the community. And so we need a whole child, whole community approach. Uh, we need you know, a couple pieces. The four big ideas coming out of our plan are one, to start earlier, truly close the gap when it comes to universal pre-K and early education. Two, that we need to wrap our families around with all the resources City Hall has to offer. I would create a children's cabinet to make sure that every department that has any services for young people and their families are coordinated and accountable together. And a family core that would connect every family, every student, the moment they enter BPS with a single point of contact all the way through graduation so that they don't have to worry about food access, housing assistance, mental health supports for a family member, everything the city already provides, but you have to jump through hoops and navigate an obstacle course to get to. Our students should have that streamlined. And so all they have to do is show up to school healthy, happy, ready to learn. We need a major facilities overhaul, right? Unacceptable that some of our schools, many of our schools, the kids don't feel comfortable using the bathrooms, right? They're so outdated. The drinking water in our fountains isn't safe, much less the gaps with science labs, performing arts spaces and all the venues that we need. We've seen some great progress on school food and, and school kitchens, but a lot more in terms of wrapping that around our families. Right. And then last but not least, vocational education should be a top priority. The chance that we have in Boston to connect our students to the incredible opportunity to use Madison Park as a platform for lifelong learning across the community. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear you talk about all of those things. And I think something that's differentiating you in the field right now is this notion of a children's cabinet and having collaboration happen both within the Department of Education, but also within the city, across the entire city and focusing around all aspects of kids. It feels like that will require a data centric system. And is Boston prepared for that? Are, are we good at that? We are. Because I know you worked under Mitch Weiss, who also <laughs> was a big proponent of, of data. And so, so I'm wondering what you think about how our system, do we have systems in place or is that a part of what the next mayor should be doing is to help us better understand our city? So we absolutely have the capability, the technology, the human capital to do this. But I think, again, it's a, it's a question of needing a shift in approach mm. rather than needing to make sure that we have the even the minor details as the top priority because we measure a whole lot, right? And sometimes often we're not sharing it publicly, right? So that definitely has to change. We are not using that data in the most effective way. And so Mitch talks a lot, for example, about the difference between probability government and possibility government that in the public sector, we often take the actions that have the highest probability of not failing, right? And that makes sense. It's high stakes, taxpayer dollars, a lot of scrutiny. But when you do that, again, all the most that you can get to is incremental change, if that. And so we need to move to a model where we're thinking about the many possibilities of how to get to 
the scale of change that we need, some of which that we're testing out will definitely fail. And we have to be honest about that and mitigate the impacts of that. But we can get to, you know, imagine if we had managed school reopening differently, rather than saying, this is a big decision, this is incredibly stressful, and then waiting until August, uh, before a, a month before school was set to start, before releasing even the first draft of a plan for the community to respond to, because there was a feeling of, okay, maybe we're gonna just rip off the Band-Aid or whatever else. It was too late to have meaningful discussion. And there was only, it was sort of, everything was in one basket, which we heard immediately from educators and families wasn't the ideal approach. If we had started a lot earlier, say even last school year, when we knew this was likely happen this in the, in the fall of, of the pandemic, or even at the beginning of the summer and said, let's see what it would take to have outdoor classrooms with tents. Let's see what it would take to test out moving some of our classrooms onto the campuses of universities or colleges that are shut down right now, or take the ice rink that's completely closed and transform that into spaced out social distance learning. Without having the time and the ability to look at a bunch of different ways, we settled on one that ended up not, I, I believe ended up delaying our full-time return to school by many, many months. And so we have to shift to measuring and using data in a way that empowers us to try out, test out and really learn from community. Very good points. You, you've served on city council for quite a while now. You ran and was, were elected first in 2013. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to run for city council? Yeah, I'm one of the, the old heads on the council now. I'm longest serving elected official in this mayoral race, eight years on the council, time working for Mayor Menino before that, for Mitch Weiss and others. And so I have a decade now in city hall, really understanding all the tools of our, our city government. And it's not something that I ever imagined. The reason why I ran the first time, despite most people, including my most well-intentioned mentors saying, don't do it. You'll, it'll never happen. You'll never win, right? Boston doesn't elect X, Y, Z about my identity that I couldn't change. Mm -hmm. Young people, women, Asian Americans, people not born in this city. Um, Thank goodness you didn't listen to all of that, huh? <laughs> Fear-driven. <laughs> it made sense at the time, right? Yeah. If, when you looked at the Boston City Council in 2013, out of our 13-member council, there was one woman serving, mm -hmm. right? Ayanna mm -hmm. Presley. Mm -hmm. And Ayanna, when she had been elected in 2009, was the first woman of color ever to be elected in Boston's history. And so it fit with the, the, the data, right? The, the evidence. But I just felt such a driving force to make sure that the issues and the struggles that my family had gone through were part of the conversation. Yeah. Because by that time, I had realized just how many families had faced the very same barriers, trying to open a small business, trying to care for a, a family member who was struggling, uh, take care, taking care of kids in the school system. And I had seen that the resources are there, right? You can, amazing things can happen in the city, but we often have to fight for them mm -hmm. when the burden shouldn't be on individuals to do that, family by family by family, but on government to meet people where they're at and to take down those barriers. So you were one of the first people to announce that you were running for mayor. What made you decide to take that leap and lean in and, and go after the mayor position? I announced in uh, mid-September, the first candidate in the race. And for me, this is about this moment in Boston, right? Such a consequential time everywhere across the world, but in our city, 
a huge wake up call from the pandemic that if you ever needed more reminders or evidence of just how wide our gaps are, just how fragile the status quo had been mm. for essential workers, for those relying on the care economy, right, who need childcare or have a, an, an elder family member who needs care for communities of color, black and brown communities, immigrant families who had every support ripped away. This is a moment where we can't afford to keep putting band-aids on situations anymore. And I've now had four terms on the city council fighting for us to look at the underlying root causes of issues, to take on the challenges that many people said were impossible to, to accomplish. And we did by building coalitions. And so if there are two lessons that I hope we always remember from this pandemic, it's first that we are completely intertwined and interconnected with the health and well-being of every other person and community, right? As much as we try to stay in our little Zoom rectangles and <laughs> isolate and quarantine at home, it was completely dependent on how every community was doing and, and um, the stability of every neighborhood. And second is that when we choose to confront crises, we can do it. Yeah. So many of the big things that we got done in this pandemic were demands, requests, things that community members had been begging for for decades, mm. right? How do we make sure that every child has the hardware, the technology to be able to access our 21st century economy? Oh, too expensive. How could we possibly give a laptop to every single student, right? And we did it. How do we make sure that every family who's hungry can get a meal, can get it delivered if they need, or can access food? There was a massive effort right from the public sector of mutual aid. And so I hope we continue this urgency, even after the, the specific public health virus, uh, emergency of the virus has settled, because there is still racism as a public health crisis, right? There is still huge disparities in our city that we have the, the ability, the resources to address. So talk a little bit about that. You served in the mayor's office. You served with Mitch Weiss, who was the mayor's chief of staff. You know how leadership has worked in City Hall in the past. Also, we all know that Boston is very good at rallying around a crisis or, or getting things done when, when we create momentum in that direction, which also comes out of leadership. Can you talk a little bit about your leadership style and what City Hall will look like, how will it function? What will your team look like? You know, what sorts of things will be important to you in order to get what you want to get done in the city, what you are hearing people want to get done in the city? How will you lead? And is it different than the way others have led the city? So I'm now thinking about, I am the only candidate in the field whose time in City Hall spans now three mayoral administrations. So I've seen all different iterations. And I think the question for me, you know, as the first Asian American woman on the council, the first woman of color to serve as council president, in some ways I have come with a different approach because I didn't know better. <laughs> I didn't know, I wasn't steeped in the, the status quo of yeah. what thing, how things had to be done because they were always done that way. And my leadership style, I think in some ways you could explain most of my views about policy and, and uh, politics and the approach from the lens of being a mom, mm -hmm. right? How urgent the issues are, how you have to manage both the very, very short term, right? Waking up every day, are they fed? Are they happy? Are they safe? You're thinking about your kids, but also what will the world be like when they're growing up, right? How do I make sure that I'm in, empowering them and giving them what they need to be able to be 
happy, healthy, functional human beings, right, when they grow up. So this constant shift between time scales. And most of all, you know, I think about our city as how I see my household. When you get into a one-off conversation with toddlers or young, young kids, especially very active, mischievous young boys, everyone loses when every conversation is a one-off in a silo, right? Can I have dessert now? How about now? Can I have candy? Can I stay up later? Can I watch TV now? And when you get into the no, not now, well, how about now? No, not now. How about now? It, it doesn't work. It's right. stressful all across the board. You need rules of the household and you need everyone to know their role, to feel like they're empowered to make a difference, right? In our house, we have the coat hooks for grownups. We have the little coat hooks down low. So Blaze and Cass can do their part. And it's about designing the household so that everyone can fit in, everyone can contribute and, and be their best within that situation. If you think about just how development happens in our city, it's very much the one-off ice cream dessert conversation, right? We wanted to build a new project here. Well, the zoning code is so outdated that in fact, we're gonna have to negotiate this in a one-off. Well, I'm now we're doing something down the street and it's a new conversation and a new conversation. We need a comprehensive plan for the city that weaves together our short and long-term needs. Climate vulnerability. Boston is one of the most vulnerable cities anywhere in the world when it comes to climate change. Our traffic and transportation system. Right? We were a city talking seriously about funding $100 million gondola to fly those who could afford it out of traffic because our transportation system had gotten that badly disconnected from our development planning. Affordability. We know that the number of people in Boston has grown by more than 100,000 in the last decade, but the number of kids living in our city has actually gone down in absolute terms because of housing costs in schools. And thinking about our school system and where we're headed, right? I have visited every single Boston Public High School, sat with the school leaders, visited with students, seen the, the conditions. And the feedback is pretty consistent that from those who have been in our district for a long time, the last time they felt there was a consistent, clear vision for the district was six or seven superintendents ago, right? More than a decade ago when we had a, a more stable situation in BPS. And so we need that clear vision and we need the urgency of a mom, I would say, yeah. to make sure we're moving swiftly towards that. I love that. As, as a fellow mom, I, I, lo I, love, I love the metaphor. It sounds like as we move through and out of COVID, and we think about the future of Boston, you think about the future of all of the constituents who live and work and play here. You're talking about needing something that's equivalent to kind of a master plan. Has Boston ever had a, a master plan? How hard would it be to rally all of the different thought leaders and stakeholders around a master plan? Can we do that? It makes a ton of sense to design, you know, a city with the future in mind. How do you think about doing that? Yeah, I mean, the, it's a lot of work, of course, but as with every other systems change that we need right now, we can't afford not to do it. Um, so to answer your question directly, the last time the city of Boston underwent a master planning process that led to comprehensive citywide zoning code changes, right, the rules that then codify it, was 1965. And we are still operating hmm. off of the base zoning code from that many decades ago. We've, you know, I don't want to, I need to give credit where it's due. There have been 
multiple smaller scale amendments to that, right? We'll do one corridor at a time, or we'll do a neighborhood at a time. But often even those planning efforts haven't then gotten all the way into changing the rules. Mm -hmm. There are multiple initiatives that have kicked off. In fact, Mayor Menino, in his very first term in office, kicked off what was called the Boston 400 planning project, where they worked on creating a master plan aimed at Boston's 400th anniversary, uh, the year 2030. And then it didn't quite get codified into the zoning code. Hmm. In Mayor Walsh's uh, first term, there was the Imagine Boston 2030 project. Again, thinking about our 400th anniversary several decades later, but similarly, it didn't end up leading to massive zoning change. It was a a lot of feedback, a lot of community meetings, but people want to see that there's impact from when they invest their time, their energy. And there's no situation that makes every stakeholder group happy, right? I have learned in government for eight years now, the easiest way to keep people happy is to do nothing. That is always going to be the truth. And so we have to have an honest conversation about what the trade-offs are right. with Boston's future. Do we preserve open space or do we turn this parcel into much needed affordable housing? How do we ensure that we're spending our resources in a way that is efficient and effective? That conversation can't happen in silos um, and it, it, it needs to happen in a big picture way. Now, can we make it manageable and have immediate action steps to move it along? Absolutely. That that has been, in some ways, what's been missing. We have lots of plans on the books around our cycling infrastructure, around our food plans, around resiliency in the city. But to get to from plan to implementation, Mm. it's about breaking it down, having regional conversations, looping in all of the stakeholders, even outside Boston, and getting every sector on the same page. What are the top lines? What are we measuring for our success? And how do we uh, ensure that we're baking in the iterative conversation to keep moving forward? Yeah, it does feel like, you know, every action and every change requires incentives to to get actual operational execution of those changes. We saw we saw it just in trying to help with food in BPS that you you really need to motivate folks to change because change is hard. And so when I think about things like you were just talking about the environment as part of this campus master plan for the city of Boston, and, and you've actually pitched the notion of a city level Green New Deal. Talk about why that's important to the city. How does it fold into kind of your overall thinking about how the city moves and advances? And will that be hard to do? So I'm very proud uh, that our team has put out the first municipal level Green New Deal anywhere in the country. And it came from a year and a half of work with local organizations, activists, best practices from across the country. We've been endorsed by Sunrise and by uh, national thought leaders like Bill McKibben because around the country, we know how urgent this issue is, right? The 2018 report from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change gave us a 12 year window from 2018 to keep emissions below a certain threshold so that our planet would continue to be livable. Otherwise we will start to see a cycle of tipping points with, you know, we already see it in Boston, uh, sea level rise, heavier storm and rains causing more flooding, higher heat days, right? Boston is projected to go from the number of 90 degree days we have per year right now to a tripling of that, where nearly our entire summer would in just a few decades would projected to be above 90 degrees, which would completely change how we live our lives, right? Making outdoor work, dangerous for people, 
risking the health of seniors and young people and those with medical conditions. And so we, we really have a, a closing window to act. Everything has to be on the table and it has to be done in a coordinated way. If you look at the seaport as one example of, of how things can happen without that comprehensive um, short and long-term planning, we are called out across the country as the one city that has put the greatest amount of new development of square footage at the greatest climate risk, right? An area that continues to flood regularly, has no transportation access in and out in terms of a, a, an easy flow of public transit and where not one single black homeowner got a mortgage with all of the development and growth there. And so this idea that our climate future is connected to our public safety, public health, to racial equity and justice, that has to happen in every single decision that the city is making. Yeah, I think people aren't aware, and you tell me, because you're out talking to all of them, that there are parts of the city where there are no trees. There are no living bodies that help make the, the city a cleaner place. So you've got places like the Back Bay that have the Esplanade and have tree-lined streets, which really help keep our air clean. And then you have places like Chinatown that we pump all of the exhaust from 93 out into, into the air, and Absolutely. there are really no trees. And so it feels like this is a very important thing to do for equity, as well as for protecting our climate and protecting our, our environment. When you're out talking to folks, because it's still decades off, do you feel like you're hearing a sense of urgency and buy-in from constituents at this point? There are pieces that are decades off and the, the very, very damaging consequences will come in, in the decades timeline. But many parts of the city and residents all across our city are affected right now. Yeah. I, I was part of convening that press conference in Chinatown at the Josiah Quincy Upper Schools basketball courts a few years ago when the Union of Concerned Scientists released a report documenting that Chinatown had, Chinatown is the most polluted census tract anywhere in the state. And as we were standing on that court where we encourage young people to go out to play basketball, to breathe in and grow and, and exercise. If you look just up all of the highways around with all the, the traffic and stalled cars, putting those particulates into the air that are leading to heart conditions, asthma, health conditions, and, and perpetuating the disparities across communities. You talk to families in East Boston and people know, right, living near the airport, near all that jet fuel pollution, they have an immediate sense of when the wind changes and you're out at the playground with your child, you start to smell it, you have to go indoors immediately because even just in the very short term, you start to get consequences and you can see it in the, in the asthma rates, in uh, low birth weight and, and many, many other health conditions. So this is an issue today. You know, I won't go on my full tangent about how trees and whales are the best technology we have to absorb emissions, uh, but suffice it to say, there's a lot that we could do. And some of it is relatively low cost, right? planting trees, growing our urban tree canopy, building that into every development conversation. There's an incredible group called Speak for the Trees that has done the work already of documenting just where across the city we already have tree pits 
built into the sidewalks, but were missing the tree there because for whatever reason it didn't survive or was cut down and it was never replaced. So even there, we have the data, we have the starting point. Um, whales, you know, again, I have a, way too much of a nerd on um, how much whales affect carbon sinking into the ocean and actually reducing emissions, yeah. but the health of our oceans and our power as a coastal city to not just avoid harm by moving away from the water or blocking it or raising barriers, but by putting forward regenerative ocean farming that would actually help with emissions, tap into wind turbines and wind energy. Boston and the New England coast has some of the most effective wind anywhere in the world to, to turn into energy. And that's also an opportunity, a multi-billion dollar business opportunity that we should tie to our racial justice initiatives and make sure we are using to close a racial wealth gap as well. So it's really about making connections, part of, part of this in order to tackle some of these problems. Um, and, and you also, one of the other things that I was interested that you've been a strong advocate for is making the MBTA free for all residents of Boston. Why, why do you want to do that? So I um, have been pushing this idea for several years now. We are in a very different place in the conversation today than three years ago when I first floated it to, in some ways, great ridicule across the, the state of how expensive, how hard, how complicated that would be when there are so many other issues right now. But for me, this is something that's very personal. Um, I started on the city council in 20 uh, began in 2014 when I was living and renting in the South End. My mom was living in West Roxbury. And so we would go drive and visit her and her health condition, mental health condition got to the point where we needed to be closer to her. There was no way we were going to be able to afford to buy in the South End or in Chinatown or you know where she might be more comfortable. So we were able to uh, amazingly uh, have a foothold in Roslindale and in, in the two family home we are in today. Although I will note that even a year after we had purchased our home, we wouldn't have been able to afford this very spot in Roslindale. So larger conversations mm -hmm. about housing. But in the move from the South End to Roslindale, I became, I went from being the counselor who lived the closest to City Hall, could walk there, could get anywhere I needed to go to meetings downtown, to having to really map out at least a 45 minute plus journey, any direction right. I wanted to go. And right. to see the inequities in that system, that at that point, before the dedicated bus lane on Washington that I fought for, uh, connecting Rosendale Square to Forest Hills, it was sometimes a 25-minute bus ride, completely unpredictable, crowded, representing the diversity of our city every time you got onto the buses. Or I could walk five more minutes to the commuter rail station in Rosendale Square, and it would come basically almost always on mm -hmm. close to on time. It would be clean, safe, but I would often be the only person of color on the entire train car because the price was nearly three times as expensive for that. And so we are perpetuating every injustice across our city through our transportation system and the barriers that it presents. Just as Boston has led the way when it comes to the public good, we are home to the first public school anywhere in the country, the first public park anywhere in the country, the first public library, all instances where we decided as a society that it's worth it to everyone. Everyone benefits when we remove barriers for people to access it, right? Imagine trying to start a, a library today. Just the, the idea that I'm gonna have things, anyone can go in, anyone can take anything out. You just have to promise to bring it back, no charge. 
that's the mindset that we have to get into when we think about public transportation. It truly is a public good. Everyone benefits when more people are able to rely on the bus, subway, or commuter rail. The people sitting on those train cars, getting to work on time and to their family, but also those who now still have to drive, but have fewer cars on the road in front of them. And everyone who's breathing the air with less pollution from fossil fuel powered vehicles. So this is really a priority. It's a long-term vision to get to free tea. The very, very short term is that we should start with bus. This is doable. We actually subsidize fare collection and, and bus service the greatest amount across all lines of public transportation. It slows everything down to collect fares on buses, right? Everyone uncrinkling the bills and tapping the cards. So it's actually, you know, every few seconds, something like five seconds shaved off of the average boarding time of our buses is $5 million of operational costs saved over the year across the system. And it's about $30 million a year for the MBTA to be uh, replacing the cost of fares that come in from mm -hmm. bus service, about $60 million statewide. And so now there's federal legislation from uh, Congresswoman Presley and Senator Markey that would generate billions of dollars for fare free transit. There's state legislation from the chair of our state uh, Senate Transportation Committee, Joe Boncori, that would require free bus service in Massachusetts, across Massachusetts. And at the city level, we could do what other cities in Massachusetts have done, right? My friend, former mayor Dan Rivera of Lawrence, uh, got tired of me pestering him about, about this conversation and just did it in Lawrence. They had a two-year pilot of free bus service. I've been able to go out there and ride it. It's incredible. You just walk on and, and you can get on and off as many times as you need. And the stories coming out of that have been amazing, right? A double-digit jump in ridership at a time when ridership was declining. Bus drivers who had driven the same routes for 20 years meeting community members who had lived there for decades for the first time because they had always had to ration their trips before or save up. And now they've extended their pilot for another two years. I, I, my hope is that it will uh, be permanent after that, but it's, it's transformational and Boston has what we need to get it done. And Boston also has a good amount of stimulus money coming into the city. Exactly. And so, it, which, which I would imagine you're thinking about, how would you prioritize as you sit in the mayor's office? How do you think about priorities using that stimulus funding to get traction on some of these initiatives that you talk about? Yeah, so this is a huge, huge opportunity, one-time infusion of funds that, again, we cannot use to put band-aids on situations. This is for underlying change that we needed all along. And so I think there's some initial decisions to be made about what proportion is going to the big citywide projects that we need to work on, that we need to advance, and what proportion should go directly to neighborhoods, right? Just as we talk a lot about school funding getting down to schools, mm -hmm. there are neighborhood level, community level projects that would be transformational as well, um, that we should empower local, local organizations and residents to help shape. And all of that comes down to, this should be about who gets a say and how we are connecting every person in our city to being able to influence this. Um, so many of the plans that we've laid out already have already come from lots of iterations of public feedback. So just from the Boston Resiliency report that Dr. Tia Martin put together, there are many, many projects there. Uh, we have some starting points in our school system as well, some badly needed facilities updates that we should start this summer while there's the opportunity and in the long term, it's making sure that we know where the impact is going at the micro grassroots level, as well as the citywide level. 
So interesting. Okay, so I want to I want to um, step back and just have a little bit of fun for a second. Um, can you talk about you've lived in the city for a very long time? Where is your favorite place to go in the city to just relax? Oh, um, I mean, it, so first, I'm not the best at relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the type of person when, when the family goes on vacation, I will like bring a project that I wanted to do, like make a photo album or go hiking by myself. So um, I actually like to be in busy environments. So Chinatown is, you know, there's every food option. So many of my comfort foods, you can see people from all different backgrounds and hear all different languages. And there's just, I, I love being in the mix. It's also the neighborhood that first connected me to the city when I was a student. Yeah. Um, if I truly am in the mindset for just disconnecting and relaxing, um, the Arboretum is mm -hmm. close to where I live and there's, it's just breathtaking, right? To think about um, what went into creating that space, right? It came out of a thousand year lease that the city of Boston and Harvard signed uh, a long, long time ago to, 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 it just, you know, not only the beauty of nature and open space and uh, the science that happens there, but to think about institutions in our city thinking in such long terms of, of really our role uh, together over a millennia. Yeah, talk about transformational. Um, do you have a favorite sports team? Oh, I, I mean, I cannot choose between our Boston um, <laughs> uh, rivalries. I will say that having grown up in Chicago in the you know, mid, late 80s, early 90s in the era of Michael Jordan, um, that is what my siblings and I would play pretend when we were younger, right? It wasn't playing house or school. It was, I was Michael Jordan. My brother is Scottie Pippen or sometimes Horace Grant and <laughs> this and that. And so I was going to ask, were you Jordan? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the Celtics basketball. I mean, I, that always just, I, I love, love, love watching the basketball game. Um, are you a coffee drinker, tea drinker? No, I, I don't drink coffee. I just, I don't know the taste. I don't need, I have enough energy. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> we had the business that I opened, um, when my mom was really struggling at the sort of height of her mental health crisis was a tea house in Chicago. Right. That's right. That's right. And so my mom, it's always been important to her as part of her culture, as part of her daily routines. And so we, I tasted probably hundreds of different types of teas for our tea house. And we picked 36 for our menu named after all different literary characters. So I have all different teas for different moods, but love, love loose leaf tea. Okay. And so where, where, where's your favorite restaurant in the city? Okay. These are all the dangerous questions <laughs> and I very, know. very mood-based. Um, so I think we have been on, um, most recently I've been going a lot to Evergreen Eatery in Jamaica Plain. Um, it's the same owner as JP Seafood. So just amazing, amazing menu. Um, huh. we, we go a lot to, um, uh, Banh Mi Oi in West Roxbury, really quick Banh Mi close by, um, no substitute for the pho restaurants on Dorchester Ave in, uh, Little Saigon in Fields Corner. And there's a whole bunch of, uh, Chinatown options. She's given us a list, a culinary tourism list. <laughs> it's too many. Uh, okay. Last question. You've worked in city hall for quite a while, as you mentioned, um, city hall is an example of brutalist architecture. It's an intense place. It's an intense structure. What do you like? I think it's beautiful. I, okay. I was going to ask, what do you like about city hall? <laughs> <laughs> so I will, I will fight anyone who 
criticizes our amazing architecture. I mean, I, I feel so if you, for example, if you compare the state house to city hall, mm. the state house is, you know, it's very grand. It's, it's, but to me, it feels more distant when you go inside, like you are, you are made small and everything's so fancy <laughs> in city hall. It just feels like humanistic and you are part of the surroundings, right? It's down to earth and the architecture inside is incredible. I mean, there are a lot of spaces where we now have installed curtains and gone away from the original intent. But if you walk just into city hall and look up, right? The main atrium and the angles that the windows are cut at, the light comes in in really amazing ways. And so anyway, I will take anyone on a tour of city hall who's interested and show you. I think that's beautiful. I know my, my biggest problem with city hall is that we've covered it with cherry paneling in places, which doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. But I, I would- there's some energy efficiency issues, but, but there, I, you know, I have plans, but there's a lot to do where we could open it up a little more and think about how to really uh, address our municipal carbon footprint as well. I love it. Well, Michelle Wu, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Uh, it's so great to learn more about, more deeply about um, how you think about things in the city. And we really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Thanks for all that you do. And thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to my conversation with City Councilor Michelle Wu. If you would like to learn more about Michelle Wu's campaign, please visit our blog. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future of Boston. Have a great day.